Hi, and welcome to this episode of Geekery in General. I'm your host, Chad, and with me tonight, as always, is Al. How are you doing tonight, Al? Hey, I'm actually the host of this show. Not anymore. <laughs> okay, so I guess you're taking it over from me, aren't you? No, not really. I just okay. uh, decided it might be fun to once in a while, you know, give your listeners something a little different. So instead of listening to you inter- introduce it, you get to listen to me introduce it. That's all. So tonight, we're going to talk about something a little bit different. I mean, especially for me. Now, Al, I know you've done a few podcasts on this. You've also done your uh, Creepypasta theater on this. But tonight, we're going to delve into Creepypasta we're going to talk about the back rooms. If you're not careful and no clip out of reality in the wrong areas, you'll end up in the back rooms where it's nothing but the stink of moist carpet, the madness of mono yellow, the endless background noise of fluorescent lights at maximum hum buzz and approximately 600 million square miles of randomly segmented empty rooms to be trapped in. God save you if you hear something wandering around nearby, because it sure as hell has heard you. (laughs) Or it's just the cat, one of the two. You know, that was the biggest thing I couldn't wrap my head around until I was watching one of... One of the many videos that I watched today about the no clipping. I'm like, what the hell is no clipping? And here it's actually a term that goes back to video game players, which I don't play video games, which is why I was confused by the term no clips. And actually, I just found this out the other day when I was researching. No clipping is technically not the correct term for the the phenomenon that people use when you enter the back rooms. See, technically, no clipping is when the camera is allowed to see through solid objects. What you're actually talking about when you, like, walk through a wall you're not supposed to is collision detection. Because, again, the way most video games work is, okay, your character, if they jump on a platform and it's supposed to be a solid object, then the game has the, the avatar representing your character stop on that platform. If you walk into a wall and the wall is supposed to be solid, it stops the character there. So technically, well, okay, this is a work of fiction. So of course we don't have to be a hundred percent accurate here, but technically when you're no clipping, you're actually just failing collision detection. As far as video games go, all right. So it's collision detection. So, but why is it when you walk through a wall or something in a video game, that you fall into this void. Or in some of the clips I saw, they actually show you under the map, and like you can still look around and stuff, but you can't really move. It depends on how the game is programmed, because I there's a game that I enjoy, Final Fantasy XV, and I, actually, I was fighting a battle, and somehow I fell through a lake, and I was just in this gray, endless void. So probably what happens is, this is just a guess, but... You know the game programs the uh, the game programmers design the places that your characters can walk and can't walk, and usually I think the term is a skybox. So they usually have this uh, you know dome that is further than you could ever possibly reach. Mm-hmm. So I think the way it's supposed to work is that when you fail to collide with the ground, you just said just end up in this void, and since you know, usually it's grayish or bluish or whatever color the skybox is. And then what happens is you're just falling because there's nothing there for the game to tell you to stop. So, so it's that's a, it's, why you... it's a, it's a programming issue basically. Yes, correct. Because I've run into that on some games that I play on my phone, you know, like, You'll like there's one game that I used to play a lot. I don't remember what it's called, but basically you have cars or motorcycles or whatever, and you jump off this, you know, you jump off a jump and you're supposed to land in this platform. Well, sometimes you just have way too much power and you overshoot the platform. And if you go far enough, usually you hit this invisible wall. But in this game, there was a couple times where you would just go beyond that and you just keep jumping. 
And so like, you know, normally where you're trying to jump like 2000 meters or whatever, and all of a sudden, you know, you let it go for a little bit and you're at a hundred thousand meters and then you're at 200,000 meters and you're never going to land. So that was one of the hard things for me to wrap my, wrap my head around was this whole no clipping thing. And now you made it even harder because they're using the wrong term. <laughs> yeah. And just but, no clipping is like I said, no clipping is the term that aficionados of the back room use. And I think some video gamers might even use it, even though, again, the correct term is collision detection. Right. See, to me, what I what I thought of when no clipping, when they were talking about the video games is, okay, so you build this room or whatever, but the the uh, programmer doesn't clip it to the to the floor. You know, like it's there, but it's not there because it was the programming wasn't complete. So that's that's the way I kind of interpreted no clip. But this is actually your podcast, so why don't you get us started here? Why don't you lay out what we're going to talk about tonight, and then we'll get started. Okay. Well, the subject of today's episode is we're going to be talking about the back rooms, and specifically how you might run a tabletop role-playing game campaign in this particular place. Now, I actually first learned about the back rooms late in 2019. I was running a playtest session for a game I wrote called Strange Things Afoot, and my players were in some sort of underground complex. And one of my players mentioned, this kind of seems like the back rooms. And at this time, I had no idea what the back rooms are or what they were. And I asked, okay, what's that? And he, you know, showed me the, some, the picture that had the, you know, that block of text I read a little while ago. And when I got home, I watched, you know, I did a YouTube search and I watched a video on the back rooms. And then after watching it, I promptly sent a message to that player going, you realize you just gave me ideas for what to do in this campaign, don't you? Sinister laugh. So let's explain a little bit about what the backrooms are, and then we'll talk about ways you can run your role-playing game campaign there. Now, okay. the backrooms, first let's talk a little bit about how they came about. So back in... 2018, there was a post that appeared on the, for, the website 4chan in a thread about cursed images. So that's where we had this familiar picture that people associate with the back rooms. It's like of a empty office space, and the walls are this sickly yellowish color with a subtle pattern. The carpet is this kind of sickly brownish color, and it's taken at a slight angle, which makes mm -hmm. it feel a bit unsettling. And the next year, in May of 2019, another 4chan user invited others to post images of places that felt off. And a couple days later, another anonymous user posted the paragraph that described the backrooms. Again, the one that I, I read at the start, start of this episode. So we really don't know who came up with this idea, but whatever the reason, the concept just took off. And... The backrooms have become a bit of modern mythology, though I would actually even say it's folklore because the concept of the backrooms is not the creation of a single person or a group, but rather it is developed collectively. There's various websites and wikis out there that contain information about the backrooms that are contributed by various users. And one of the nice things about it is since there isn't an official canon to the backrooms, you can incorporate pretty much anything you want here. So we don't really know what the original author's intent was as to whether he thought or envisioned the backrooms as being one huge level. Because again, in the, the paragraph that first described it, it was said to be over 600 million square miles. And in comparison... Yeah, can you imagine, can you imagine just the, the sheer volume of 600,000 square miles? 600 million. Or 600 million square miles. Well... And on top of that, it's just all this sickly yellow, which everybody knows is the color of insanity, you know, and these slightly damp, 
carpets. I mean, if you've ever walked across slightly damp carpet, it's it's horrible. Yeah. So just for comparison, to give you an idea of how big 600 million square miles would be, the estimated surface area of all the land masses on Earth are believed to be approximately 57 million square miles. The entire surface area of the Earth, including the the watery parts, is believed to be about 197 million square miles. So it's three times the size of Earth. Correct. Even if you just did the one level of the back rooms, 600 million square miles, you have a lot of room to play with. So that kind of reminds me, Al, have you ever played the world's largest dungeon? I've never played it. I think I've seen a copy of it at my local gaming store. So, I mean, I know it's this big book, but I've never actually played it. It's huge. It's thick. It's got to be, I don't know, four inches thick, something like that. Um, And if you start at level one and you work your way through all the different levels and the different rooms and the... There's cities embedded in this. I mean, it's it's just a whole entire thing. It, it takes you, I believe, and I, this was in third or 3.5 is what it was written for, from level zero all the way to, you know, epic levels of up to like 100 if you finish the entire dungeon. We played, um, I played in it once. I think we played for about six months, once a week, and we were like level eight. And we really hadn't even really cracked anything on this. You could, I mean, you could put anything you wanted in there since there's no cannon. Um, I mean, they have certain creatures that are supposedly in level zero or level one or two or whatever. Um, And I'm sure we'll get into the different levels a little bit anyway. But you could do pretty much whatever you wanted with it. And... For them to find their way back to the entrance, per se, would be impossible almost. Mm-hmm. So even though the back rooms have only been around for a, a fairly short time, they've had actually quite a bit of an impact on the creepypasta and horror internet communities. Because in addition to the wiki sites, there have been YouTubers that have made their own theory videos about the back rooms. I've seen a couple... Uh, fan films about it there have also been some computer games as well and i also just wanted to announce that i'm also in the process of writing a tabletop rpg that will take place in the back room so you'll probably hear more about that uh in the coming months we could we could throw another teaser out there if you want to sure go ahead so we're also right now um al myself and scott Um, We're all working on a book of horror short stories, and one of the horror short stories that I'm writing is going to take place, quote-unquote, in the back rooms as well. Okay, so as you can see, it's had this influence. And getting to the back rooms is actually interesting because we mentioned before about no clipping out of reality. Depending on who you ask, there's some posts that claim that it's something you can do willingly. However, it's more commonly accepted that it's something that it happens completely at random. So in theory, you could be stepping out of the shower one day, fail to clip with the floor, and the next thing you know, you are in the back rooms soaking wet with nothing but a towel around your waist. If you were lucky enough to grab your towel. Yes. If, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> yes, you're soaking wet naked in the middle of the background, back rooms, which would not be good. No, I think you'd die relatively quick from, if nothing else, you know, hypothermia. So we're, as we said before, we're here to talk about how you might run a role-playing game there. So if you had to choose a role-playing game system to run in the back rooms, what are some that you think would be appropriate? Because usually whenever I talk about my historical gaming episodes that I've done and any episode where I talk about running an RPG in a specific setting or time period, usually I focused on Dungeons and Dragons. I think really most versions of D&D can be modified for use in most historical settings. Though I don't think I would necessarily recommend Dungeons and Dragons for a backrooms campaign. I mean, granted, while you do have that dungeon crawl aspect, 
I've always seen the back rooms as more of a like a survival horror video game. You should constantly be scraping around for resources, and not only that, you should have to think twice about whether you're going to fight something or not. Because in a lot of times in D and D, okay, so you see a you know a monster or potential potentially dangerous opponent approaching. Well, if you're high enough level, you could just cast Fireball or Magic Missile at them or Lightning Bolt and hopefully be done with it. Now, if you're able to do that in the back rooms, I think it takes away the the terror or the horror aspect of the setting. So if you did want to use Dungeons & Dragons for a backrooms campaign, you'll probably want to either severely limit magic-using characters if not, just take it away entirely. So what are some ideas that you have for some settings you think could work here? And I have a feeling I know at least one that you're going to mention. Yeah, you probably do. But I'm going to start with a few lesser known ones. Um, I think the role-playing game um, High School of the Damned would work well, where you would create your high school student because it's a very low magic. Or actually, I believe it's a no magic system. Um, it's written by Ben Schultz. Friend of ours. Though I don't think he's, I think he just writes novels nowadays. I don't think he does any. Yeah, he's not, games he's no anymore. longer writing, or he's no longer writing games as far as I know. But, you know, you're just standard high school students. You go out, you have the things that a high school student would have available to them. And I think if you started this as a regular high school of the damned game and you no clipped the group into the back rooms, I think it would be a perfect setting for that. Um, I would also say that from what I know of your game, strange things afoot, I think it would work good in that. I mean, we played a, game i played a game one time that was pretty close to something like that anyway you took us into a bunch of rooms and you know we had to figure out this uh this maze and how to get out of it the uh adventure that chad is referring to is called the yellow maze and it's one of the demo adventures i made for strange things afoot which uh it's basically a game i made that takes influence from creepypasta and urban legends and I told you the story before about how one of my playtesters told me about the back rooms and the yellow maze was uh, actually inspired by the back rooms. So, and yeah, with uh, Strange Things Afoot, it does have magic in it, but the magical effects are very subtle. Yes, yes. And then, of course, my the main one that the first thing that popped in my head when you said this was Call of Cthulhu. Because... You can limit it very easily. So I would recommend the Call of Cthulhu Gaslight setting, which is the 1890 setting. And the reason for that is it would severely limit the type of high-powered guns your your players could have. But if you were going to do the back rooms, I would actually recommend that you just don't allow guns in general. Because it would be okay if they had a knife or a club or something like that, because some of the creatures that's enough to get rid of them. Some of the creatures it wouldn't be, you know, and it would be an actual fight for their lives. So I guess if I was going to run it, I would probably use call of Cthulhu just because I'm familiar with the system. It's a, it's a percentile system. It's really easy. It's already a horror based system. So the only, the only drawback to any of these things is you would have to stat out the creatures because I don't have creatures in the back rooms in my Call of Cthulhu monster manual. <laughs> now, I admit I don't have a lot of experience with Call of Cthulhu. Uh, only played it a handful of times, but I think that it lends itself well to the back rooms because not only is it the type of setting where you're not going to have a lot of powers and abilities, but you have the sanity system. And I think that's something that you should incorporate in the back rooms because, you know, you're, there's a possibility since you're going to be alone a lot, you are going to be driven insane by the back rooms. So that's why I think it would lend itself well. Another system I think would work really well with modification 
would actually be TSR's Marvel superhero system from the 80s, uh, also known as the face rip system. However, of course, you'd want to take away the superhuman powers and cap the stats at normal human levels. So again, if you take away the superpowers, don't allow characters to have superhuman strength and endurance, just keep them as normal humans, I think it could work, that system could work as well. I don't know, as a player, I'd be like, why are we playing superheroes, the superhero system, if I can't be a superhero, you know what I mean? Because I think the backrooms is one of those things where you sell your game as something else. Like I say, hey, we're going to play Gaslight Call of Cthulhu. My friends would be like, okay, what's going on? And I can say, you know, you can say whatever. You know, you're going to be you're going to be working for the queen. You're going to be because after and maybe even play that game for a session or two and then have them clip out. It doesn't work so well for like a convention game because there you want them to have the flavor of the game. Yeah. But I think like for a campaign that you're going to run that's going to last a while, hell, play one or two sessions as the actual game. Say, hey, we're going to play Call of Cthulhu. You know, stuff starts happening and then something happens and they clip out. Now, that's the other thing I would recommend is keep your party small. One, two at most, I would say. And then if you can, separate them. <laughs> yeah, I think, again, I think a small party would work best for a backrooms type setting, uh, just because since you are going to be in a lot of closed, cramped spaces, you don't want to have a large group of people in there. It's just going to be, if you think about it realistically, it's going to be hard to do anything. Well, and then if you think about it, the creatures that attack, they are made to attack a single person. They are made to attack and overwhelm a single person. So then you either have to generate these creatures being stronger or you have to create them to become pack animals, basically, or, you know, pack uh, fighters. Pack but hunters. I, pack hunters. Yeah, that's the right word. But, you know, I just think it would be really neat, um, you know, just for a session with a single player or two players at most. Maybe three, depending on who you're playing with and and their ability to play. Because that's another thing. I don't think you want to take noobs into the back rooms. Because you and I know, every time you get noobs sitting at the table, what's the first thing they want to do? They want to fight. And that's not necessarily the best thing for them to do in the back rooms. That is true, and I like that idea. Again, give them a couple of sessions of whatever game that you tell them you're going to play, and then next thing they know, they're in this strange place with uh, yellow wallpaper and the buzzing of fluorescent lights. Mm -hmm. So, Which is even better if you think about it as a gaslight game in Call of Cthulhu. They don't know what fluorescent lights are. They don't. They're used to, at best, you know, like, natural gas lights like gaslight you know which they're going to come into this world where lights are just flickering and buzzing and they're going to be completely brain blown you know yep another thing that i think is interesting about the back rooms is at least to my knowledge so far there has been no official explanation for how they came into being you know who made them what made them or why and the closest I've seen to an origin is on the uh, one of the wiki sites, and they mention that whatever it is that draws people into the back room distorts a person's perception to display the most monotonous thing possible, hence mm -hmm. the yellowish walls and floor and the continuous buzz of the lights. So let's start with the, talking a little bit about the original three levels. Now, again, you should know that if you do decide to run a campaign in the back rooms, or if you decide to take your players there, these are not the only three levels you have to work with. I think I found a list that right now they're up through like 999 levels and like four that are Greek named. You know, they have like Greek letters or whatever. Well, they have a list that's several hundred long, but not all of them have entries right now. 
if you look up the uh, Backrooms Wiki on Wikidot, that's where I got a lot of my information from. As well as myself, yeah. That's where I was. Still, there's tons of levels that they have. And again, unlike something like, say, Lord of the Rings or Forgotten Realms or Star Wars, there's no established canon. So you can take them to whatever type of level you want. You know, and the funny thing about that is I watched three different videos on the backrooms. Your your backroom video. I watched a backroom video by uh, a Mr. Ferrente. And then I also watched one from a gentleman named Nick Crawley. All three of them did not agree on what creatures are in these three levels. Yeah, so you can incorporate pretty much anything you want. The Wikidot site is a good place to start because it gives you ideas. They don't have any game stats for them, but at least it's a place to go for some reference. But they do give, they don't have game stats, but they do give you reference to their relative strength, if not to humans, to each other. So the first level is level zero, also called the lobby. This is the entry point to the backrooms, and while the entity count is low and is still dangerous, it is considered one of the safest levels of the backrooms. So this level consists of a maze of rooms with the infamous yellow wallpaper, moist carpet, and buzzing fluorescent lights. The next of the main three levels is level one, and this is described as being similar to level zero, but the walls are often painted yellow concrete. Some entries describe it to an endless empty warehouse with puddles of water and patches of fog. It's considered one of the most habitable levels of the backrooms. Occasionally, you will encounter crates, and these crates might contain useful items like food, medicine, weapons, or tools. Sometimes the crates might even include useless or bizarre items like boxes of crayons or car parts. And the last of the three main levels... Level 2 is described as an endless maintenance corridor, so the walls are usually unpaved in concrete and lined with pipes. The temperature in this level is quite hot and can sometimes get over 100 degrees. Occasionally, a traveler will find rooms on this level that contain supplies and even working computers with internet access. So even though we're in this strange paranormal setting, Apparently, you can still get Wi-Fi, though it's said that probably not a good idea to use it because that increases the chance of something finding you. But I thought that's interesting that some of the authors of these levels uh, have mentioned that you can still get, you can still access Wi-Fi and cellular networks and how the, the backrooms actually seems to have its own internet network. Now, while you're wandering the backrooms... Fortunately, you're not always going to encounter monsters. You can encounter other people, which, of course, may or may not be a good thing, but there, the Backrooms Wiki does list several groups that you can encounter. Perhaps the most important one is the MEG, the Major Exploration Group. It's said to be a friendly group that tries to rescue and assist people lost in the Backrooms. They're very well structured with several outposts throughout the backrooms, and they're divided into several teams, each with a specialty. For example, there's Team Compass Point, which handles exploration, Lock Breakers, which handle breaking into locked rooms, and the Wild Warriors, which exterminate hostile entities. Yeah, I, I, was, I really kind of like the, uh, the Meg. I like the fact that there is a group within the backrooms that are there to help you out in any way possible. And I read the short story between them and the uh, the uh, guy named Austin and how they came to help this small group of, well, 12 people with Austin fight off, uh, you know, the different enemies. Uh, I forget what enemy they were fighting. But anyway, um, it, it smelled of almond water. Um, but um, I thought it was kind of neat that they sent in two different teams. There was one team to bring them supplies, which they did that would last them for like five months. And then another team that came in to take the body of the entity so that for further study, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, that was an insanity, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an insanity. I haven't read so, that yeah. story, but it may have been. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was an insanity um, because they're the ones that their blood basically turns to something that smells like almond water, which we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so it was it was it was a neat little story. Well, next there's the BNTG, the Backrooms National Trade Group. So this group was originally part of the MEG, but broke away from them. And like the MEG, they are divided into several specialized departments. They're focused more on trade, though, over protecting people, and they've established several trading posts throughout the back rooms. I'm pretty sure they're the mafia. <laughs> I would actually compare them maybe more to the Trade Federation in Star Wars. Uh, you mean like the Ferengi? That's that's Star Trek. Oh yeah, well. I, I, I suppose like the Ferengi, uh, I don't know as much yeah, about Star Ferengi, Trek. Yeah, the Ferengi, the Trade Federation, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it could be that way. It's just, they just kind of struck me as mafia types because they were just like, we have the stuff, we'll give it to you, but don't try to take it from us. Yep. Kind of thing. Now, there's also a group called the Followers of Jerry. So this is a group of people who worship a blue parrot named Jerry, who has an unusual power. When Jerry touches someone, that individual will regard Jerry as a god. Yes. And, you know, I gotta say, that is one of my favorite groups. They don't have any information on him yet, but I can't wait till somebody writes up something on Father Bluebird, who's (laughs) like the human guy that's in charge of everything. And then you got Jerry, and then you got... They're basically cultists. They're followers of Jerry. Their entire theory is to get everyone to be followers of Jerry and by that way own the back rooms. Mm-hmm. And there are a group of followers of Jerry that if you speak badly about Jerry or if you're in a a group of people, of survivors that don't believe in Jerry, they'll just come and kill you. Yep. Not all groups in the back rooms are friendly. Uh, one that you certainly want to watch out for are the Eyes of Argos. These are the self-appointed policemen of the back rooms. They were a group of policemen who no-clipped and were rescued by a mysterious entity named Argos. However, they're very unpopular because they have been known to torture and kill those who they see as criminals, regardless of their alliance or lack thereof. Yeah, they attack anybody that uh, breaks the laws of Argos. He wrote a book about it. If Argos himself comes after you, you know you're in you're in deep water because he kills. He doesn't ask questions. If you break one of his laws, I mean a major one, it's got to be a really bad thing. Like the the story I read, the guy had killed seven people. So Argos slowly killed him in return. Argos, however, is the oldest person that I ran across that is in the back rooms. They don't know the actual age of the back rooms, but most of what I saw, the writing started in about 1909. Argos is 500 years old. Yeah, the earliest reference to dates that I've seen were from the 1800s, which brings actually to the next group, next major group I uh, read about, the cartographers. So they're formerly known as the Cartographer's Republic, and it started out innocently enough as an organization of scholars who somehow entered the backrooms sometime during the 1830s. So you would think with a name like Cartographers, their goal is to map out the backrooms, but their actual goal is to conquer the backrooms. So they see themselves now more as an empire and have little interaction with other groups beyond introducing new members. Yeah, they're kind of dicks. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of information even on the wiki dot on these guys. Um I think it's a I think it's a group that's still being built, but they just yeah, they not somebody you want to run across. Yeah, so yeah, as you can see there's both good and bad groups that are in the back rooms and I think that introducing them can certainly add to the campaign because you might have to choose do you want to remain a wandering nomad? Or you might want to join a group for protection, but then again, you never know when you join a group if there's another group that might hate you for no other reason than the fact that you're part of whatever group. Right. Yeah. So it's a 
it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But I think most people would want to join a group just simply because that's how they're going to keep that human contact. We all go nuts really quick if we don't have human contact. It's just, yep. it's just the human condition. Yes. So that's something that I think would be very important in a campaign, especially you know, hooking up with a, a group for protection and information and, and survival. Now, speaking of survival, one of the items that appears in a lot of entries is almond water, which is interesting because this is kind of like your Swiss army knife of magic potions that you can get in the back rooms. Yeah, pretty now, much. Yeah, in its natural state, it's actually can be dangerous to drink, so you have to boil it first. But it does a number of useful things. So it seems to function like holy water. There's certain monsters that can, you know, that can be repulsed or hurt by it. Or tamed, because you can tame Jerry with sunflower seeds and almond water. It also restores your sanity. Again, very important in the back rooms. There's some diseases and inflictions that are found in the back rooms that can be cured with almond water. Uh, there's also super almond water, which is, well, in D&D terms would be probably like a potion of extra healing. So it Well, it's be, more than that because super almond water, my understanding is it reheals, like if you lost a limb, it will reheal your limb. If you're, if you're poisoned, it gets rid of that. I mean, it, it pretty much is a cure-all. There's also another entry I saw, and I forgot what it was for. They mentioned cashew water, but I couldn't find anything about what it was supposed to do. Mm, see, I didn't see that one. Um, but stepping, taking a step back here to almond water, it also rehydrates you. It also has minor um, nutritional value. But what I liked about it is they told you where you can get it. So... Level four, it's everywhere, supposedly. You can just find bottles filled with it on level four. But it's also, you can find it on 10, 11, 18, 28, and 29. But again, no cannon, so it doesn't matter where you put your people, they could have almond water. You could also visit the uh, the party goers on level fun. They have lots of almond water, or so they say. If you believe them. Yes, By the way, don't believe them. There's also another level I saw. I don't know if it was a sub-level or a joke level, because there are some people that have made joke levels. There's one called the Snack Rooms, so you can find it there as well. Well, actually, the Snack Room came up when I was looking at a different entity, the artist, because if you go to the level with the artist and you are nice to her and you enjoy her art, she will get you she will get you out of her level she will give you almond water and, and snacks and when you ask her where she gets it from she says the snack room okay so maybe it's a sub level because that's one thing that's weird and again this just goes along with the fact that there's no real established canon because there's your your normal levels there's sub levels there's negative levels there's joke levels yeah there's a lot out there yeah, one of my favorite uh, joke levels was called, Oh God, Oh Fuck. I guess it's this level where, like, Pope Francis is looking at you all the time. <laughs> oh my God, that would be horrible. I don't know, Pope Fra if it's the real Pope Francis, he seems like a decent fellow. No, he's a decent guy, but he's still the Pope. I mean, uh, I'll pass. That was strictly listed as a joke level, though. Right, but imagine right. you do go to a level where it's like everywhere you go, there's there's Pope Francis looking at you. I'd probably shoot myself. <laughs> Moving on, another item you can find that I saw was a fire salt, which is a crystal that can be used as an explosive, a source of heat, or even a fuel if if you find a you know a vehicle within the back rooms. Uh, there's also another thing I saw: smiler repellent which I didn't look too much into the Smilers. I just know they're a type of entity you can find in there. So apparently this will repulse them for a few minutes. Okay. Um, stepping back to fire salt. So it's an impact weapon. So basically if you find crystals, depending on the size of the crystal, depends on the size of the boom. But did you also know, did you read about 
pyro oil or pyro oil. Yes. Which is liquid fire salt, which you can use. You can melt it down to make this pyro oil and then cool it and have a bigger boom. So I thought that was really cool. One of the things I found is something called Oracle. Did you read about Oracle at all? Um, no, I didn't get a chance to, no. Okay, so Oracle is actually it's a highly classified MEG project. So when you're on the wiki, it's like, click here and enter your administration password to get to this thing. But of course, you just click it and it pops open. It's lesser known. It has healing and strength properties to make you like super soldiers. So what they said is they don't want the world at large, i.e. the back rooms, to know about this because if they know about it and somebody other than Meg gets a hold of it, they could wipe out Meg as, a, as an entity altogether. And that's on like just a milliliter dose. I mean, that's how powerful this stuff is. So I thought that was kind of cool. So I wanted to bring that one up. Now, there's, of course, a lot of uh, enemies that you can find roaming around, and we've talked about a couple of them. Uh, one of the more common ones appears to be insanities. So this is what happens when a human goes insane in the back rooms. Their skin turns red. Their mouths become insanely large, grins. They're said to move slow, so I would probably stat them as zombies, even though I guess technically they're not undead. Uh, so there's four stages to becoming an insanity, though it is possible to revert a person back to normal if they're given almond water before reaching stage four. Well, yes and no. I mean, the way I read it is stage one is just a, a normal insane person. Almond water will definitely bring them back. Stage two is when their skin starts to turn a reddish brown color. And almond water is good and should bring them back. So stage three is when they start to develop these holes in the skin they talk about. And it secretes a like a viscous clear liquid that smells like nuts or almonds. But they don't believe it's almond water. Now, if you give almond water to a creature that that's at that stage, it's iffy whether or not it will bring them back. And then, of course, the fourth stage... Uh, is when they um, they get the big smile and the eyes and things like that, and almond water won't help at all. When they reach fourth, it's not just turn and run. Another enemy we also mentioned were the party goers. So they look kind of like the old cartoon character Gumby. They come in a variety of colors. Their arms and in mouth-like features that resemble the mouth of a lamprey. They sometimes carry balloons, and the reason people fear them is because they're said to transform people into partygoers. They will make entries in the backroom's database in an attempt to lure people to into traps, but it's said that they always end their entries with a smile emoji, so fortunately it's pretty easy to tell what they're doing. Did you happen to, to click the link that took you to the fun level uh, that had been edited by the party goers it is so ridiculously not obvious or it's so ridiculously obviously not a true you know insert it's like we have balloons and parties and cupcakes and all this kind of stuff and it's just like if you're on level 188 and you see confetti coming out of a window that's just us having a party now, was that a, because I know Mr. C. Feriante, uh, and again, just as a recommendation here, if you are interested in learning more about the backrooms, uh, again, the YouTuber Mr. C. Feriante has a lot of videos about the backrooms, and I know he has one on level fun. Okay. The, the, the way they did it on the wiki dot, it was just really funny and so obvious that you were not looking at a real, you know, wiki dot thing. Yeah, and I think when they were talking about exits, it's like, why would you want to leave? Yes, exactly. So another enemy I thought was interesting were wallpaper wraiths, which, in, as, of course, Chad and I, as Dungeons & Dragons fans, we're used to thinking of wraiths as, like, undead creatures. But in the back rooms, these are actually slug-like creatures that stick to walls or ceilings, 
and ambush their prey by wrapping their long tongues around their neck, either trying to suffocate it or break the neck. Uh, however, it said their main weakness is loud noise. So if you make a loud enough noise, it can cause them to have a heart attack and die. Which is why they, that's why the first attack they do is they cover your mouth with the tongue. But I thought it was interesting, these wallpaper race. What they reminded me of more uh, from a D&D &D standpoint would be ropers. Have you ever run into a roper in D&D? I've never actually run into one, but I know what you're talking about. And yeah, okay, I, can yeah. See, I can totally see that. But um, they were, uh, but you're right. When I hear the word race, I think undead, you know, evil kind of thing. But these things are evil, but in a way they're not. Again, we have to look at what are we really talking about here? Well, the wallpaper race, they kill people. If they're hungry, they eat them. But if not, they take them back to their nests to feed their young. They're just parents trying to do the best they can in a world that's up. That is true. So now another type of common enemy are the facelings. And there's several different types. The They can appear male, female, androgynous, adult, or child. In some ways, they're similar to Slender Man in that their faces are just skin, totally devoid of any features. Now, it's said the adult facelings can be friendly and will usually only attack with provoked. There's also child facelings, which are often more mischievous. They usually carry knives, so they're very unpredictable in that. Sometimes they only want to play pranks. Sometimes they're more hostile. You know, and the one thing that really caught my eye about the children facelings is they are always female. Did you catch that? I think I saw they're mostly, Is are they always female or just mostly? Yeah, it said, no, it said always female, okay. which I thought was interesting. Okay. There's also pink dress facelings. And when I last checked the wiki, it said that they were the deadliest kind or among the, mo the deadliest kind of facelings. Though so far it seems no one's really elaborated as to why they're so dangerous. Yeah, basically what it said, I mean, there wasn't a huge entry, but basically what it said is, if you see the pink dress, it's already too late. Yeah. <laughs> Shadow facelings, they look like silhouettes, but they're solid, and I know they're also supposed to be pretty dangerous as well. There were also the memory facelings, so... These are also extremely dangerous because they take on the appearance of a friend or a loved one, which when you've been stuck in this yellow maze of rooms, I mean, if you all of a sudden see, you know, your boyfriend, girlfriend, or one of your parents coming towards you, that could certainly catch you off guard. Yeah. And with that one, I'm going to sidestep here a second because I know we've got, I've got one more face lean at least that I want to talk about, but Memory facelings are not like the other ones because they, they don't know exactly how they're created, but they do with the memory facelings. So there's an entity called the memory worm. And what that does is it alters memories. It will eat you. When it eats a human, a human person and it passes through its um, digestive tract, it will poop out other entities. And one of the entities it poops out is the memory facelings along with wormlings and splats. That's a charming thought. Right? Now, the other facelink I want to talk about, which was not on your list, <laughs> was the old man facelink. Did you Gee, read about Chad, him Chad, I all? wonder why you wanted to talk about old men. Hey, you're older than I am. <laughs> not by much. No, but you are. So anyway. I'm in my mid-40s. I'm still in my prime, in theory. <laughs> So anyway, these these old men uh, facelings, they're pretty much harmless, and they have wrinkles on their their, and they they're just creepy. They will like walk up to you and feel you to see what you are. So like, if you don't want, they're not gonna hurt you. But if you don't want that to happen, when you see one, you just go the other way. If you feel like getting felt up for a while. So I wonder if they tell you to get off their lawn. Of course not. They don't have mouths. <laughs> and they don't talk anything about being having a psychic link, so I'm going to say no on that. Hell now, okay. the last, the last um, 
entity I have on my list, which was one that was not on your list, is the uh, Skin Stealer. And this just creeps me out. So the Skin Stealer are these bipedal, yellow, covered in suction cups, humanoids. So what they do is they mimic humans by wearing the skins of people they've killed. They are very creepy. They may have several layers of skin, and they can make human sounds, but they, they're not intelligent. So they just say the same words and stuff over and over uh, that you might have, but that they might have heard. So they don't tend to speak very often, but when they do, they don't understand what's being said to them. They will just say phrases that they've heard over time. So they're, they're truly, they truly mimic humans in the only way they know how, which is through mimicry. So to draw a parallel from Dungeons & Dragons, they're kind of like the mimics of the backrooms. Yeah, really, they really are. Because like the mimics in D&D, they, they mimic whatever. Treasure chest usually because, you know, adventurers are greedy. But they can, they can mimic whatever depending on the size of the mimic. I once, I once threw a mimic at a group that was a door. And then the best part about this was somebody attacked the door when they realized what it was. And then the monk walked over there and punched the mimic and got his hands caught in the mimic. <laughs> it was fun. Yep. Well, I think this is a good place to end. So uh, hope you guys thought, found this interesting. Again, if you are interested in learning more about the backrooms, look up the backrooms wiki on wicked dot dot. I don't know if it's dot com or dot org. I think it's dot com. But yeah, just look up the backrooms wiki. Again, if you go to YouTube, uh, Mr. C. Feriante has a lot of videos. Um, I did a video on Point of Insanity Game Studio about the backrooms. Uh, Nick uh, this, Crowley. And yeah. I, I know David Crypt is another guy who's done some videos on the backrooms. So yeah, just look up the backrooms and you can, you know, you'll certainly find lots of information out there. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you all for listening today, and until next time, have a wonderful day and happy gaming. You have been listening to a presentation of Eclectic Media Podcasts. Visit our website at www.eclecticmediaproject.com and check out our publishing arm at www.poigamestudio.com. Find us on Twitter, Scott at EMP underscore Scott, Al at POI Game Studio, and Chad at Chad EMP. You can also find Eclectic Media Project and Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook as well. Listen to all of our podcasts on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more entertaining and thought-provoking content.